Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. On the night of April 23rd, 1984, outside of a convenience store in New Orleans, two young men approached a couple and attempted to rob them at gunpoint. In the struggle that ensued, one of the perpetrators, 17-year-old Eric Batiste, was shot and killed by his partner. The shooter ran off and the couple gave a description of the shooter to the police. Eric and his friends were well known to local cops. When the call came over the radio, Officer Marlon DeFillo immediately thought of George Toka. The two often ran together, so DeFillo figured George may have been Eric's partner in the botched robbery and pegged him as the one who had killed Eric. When George was brought in for questioning, he told police that although he and Eric had been out with friends that night, he'd left to spend time with his girlfriend at a motel during the time of the robbery. At trial, the prosecutor pointed out that the victims had ID'd George in a photo array, and the motel owner testified that he'd never rent a room to a teenager like George. Officer DeFillo's hunch must have been right, but then again, this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today, we're going to attempt to make sense out of a situation that doesn't make any sense. It didn't make sense back in 1984 when it happened. It doesn't make sense now, 2023, almost 40 years later. None of this should have ever happened. But it did, and the consequences are are very real. Um, today, we're going to be telling the story of George Toka, my friend, who is here with us after serving over three decades in Angola Penitentiary in Louisiana. So, George, I'm glad we're finally doing this. It's such an important story, and I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for the tape for everything and your commitment to, to, to the cause of, of wrongful convictions and stuff. 
And with George today to help us tell the story is Richard Davis. Richard is the legal director of the Innocence Project of New Orleans, also known as IPNO, one of the most respected innocence organizations, not just in the country, but in the world. And I'm, I'm really happy, Richard, to have you here today. Thank you. And thank you for having us on. So, George, what was your life like growing up? You were just 17 when this happened. So you're just a kid. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I came up. And a uh, a single parent home, my mom, but let she she had seven kids, and we we lived in a do all the projects. Never met my father, uh, so it was it was tough. Uh, and not having a father there, just watch my mom struggle. We didn't have much to, to eat or clothes to wear, so it just it was tough. You were known as Chicken George back then, which is kind of a, what, where did you get that nickname from? Yeah. I was growing up, love animals, and uh, we started stealing chickens, and people thought, give me chickens. Well, I ran away as a kid because my stepdad was became abusive to my mom, and so I met a guy named Terrence and his mother, Miss uh, Miss Verna Me. I just went to the house, I ain't won't leave one day, and she like, well, you come on in. So she really. Bought me clothes, helped me go go to school, and just thing like that. She, she was a a good woman, and see, she gave me that name, Chicken Joy, after watching me, after you know the movie uh, Roots and stuff, and seeing me with chickens, and I, I hate I hate that name as I got older. <laughs> you know, but, but it stuck. And tell me about your best friend Eric Batiste. How did you guys meet? We met in about fourth or fifth grade, I think, at Phyllis Weekly School. We met and we just instantly became instant friends. And, then, and we had so much in common, like I say, coming from broken homes. And uh, we just we just had like a real bond, pure love. But we just started leaving, school, cut school together, and just to go to French quarters uh, on Bourbon Street just to tap dance and shine shoes, just to uh, earn food for a cheeseburger, you know, something to eat and some clothes because we you know, would go home and there was no food at, at, at home. You know, our mom was, you know, they would work or whatever, didn't have any money for food. So we just would fend for ourselves as as kids. And then we began to go to life of crime, you know, the, the tap dancing and the, and the child wasn't bringing in much money. So we, we, you know, we began to see the other guys around our neighborhood committing crimes. And uh, we, so we started doing that, working bringing in like machines and stuff like that. So you and Eric were, as I understand it, pretty well known to the neighborhood police as a couple of young kids who were into these petty crimes. But it turns out that Eric was also getting into much more serious crime, which is what ultimately led to his unfortunate and untimely death and to your tragic wrongful conviction. Richard, can you tell us what happened on that fateful night of April 23rd, 1984? Yes. So the crime that Georgia was arrested for, it was um, two young men were seen trying to rob a white couple in the early hours of the morning on a street in New Orleans. It turned into an altercation and one of the people trying to commit the robbery accidentally shot the person he was with, a young man named Eric Batiste, who was a 17-year-old who was George's best friend. And so essentially what happened is that even though the couple who had been robbed, their descriptions of the two people who robbed them, the second robber did not match George's appearance at all. An officer who knew George and knew Eric from the neighbourhood heard being radioed that Eric Batiste had been killed and that the person who 
accidentally shot him was his accomplice and just thought Eric Batiste's best friend is George Toker. So if someone was committing a crime of Eric Batiste and accidentally shot him, it was George Toker. And the officer you're referring to was a local cop named Marlon DeFillo. He and I definitely had a history, you know, coming up in my little the, the, the petty crime looks career. He arrested me a few times. I had a few warrants out. And so he, he knew me and Eric, best friends. So, you know, he's the main reason why my name got implicated in this crime. You know, I didn't do it. Which should have been obvious as soon as the two victims described the man who had killed Eric Batiste to the police. So they described an assailant who was, I think, 5'10 or 5'11 and who was older than Eric. George was maybe 5'5 five, five or 5'6 five, at the time. And he also was a very young looking 17 year old too. And he was significantly smaller both than Eric and than the description of the second person. But even though George didn't fit that description, Officer DeFillo, who had already fixed his sights on George for the murder, completely ignored that fact. And there was something else about George that would have been obvious to the victims had he been the second assailant. Yet they never mentioned it when they were shown George's picture in a photo array. George had extremely prominent gold teeth at the time, like buck teeth kind of that you could see with his mouth closed even. And neither witness described the person, the shooter, as having gold teeth. The mugshots, of course, didn't show George's height, so they didn't know he was smaller. And his gold teeth weren't clear in the photos. And then they made those identifications and that's their case and that is the basis for George getting life without parole. And I just want to take a quick second to talk about how terribly unreliable eyewitness identifications can be. Now, anyone can see that George doesn't match the description that these two people gave, and yet they themselves ID'd him as the shooter after viewing his photo. Richard, can you explain what might have been going on there? So as far as we could piece it together 20 and 30 years later, they were shown a photo array containing George because it was a photo array rather than a live lineup. His height isn't displayed in that, and it wouldn't have been apparent to them how distinctive his gold teeth were. And so they make an identification from a photo. I believe it was administered non-blind, so by an officer who knew who the suspect was in the photo. And these are cross-racial identifications, so it's this classic recipe for a wrongful identification. So first off, the photos are not clearly displaying the features that excluded George. In addition, it was non-blind, when the only way these should ever be done is that the lineup should be administered by somebody who has no knowledge of who the suspects actually are, nor any contact with the investigators. But even more important than that, in study after study, cross-racial identification has been shown to be less accurate than even just making a wild guess. But back in 1984, none of this was known, and probably should have been, but it wasn't known or considered. And then... As we see in a lot of cases, once they have identified someone from a photo, that becomes the person they stick with and find ways to discount all the contradictory evidence. I mean, had they even cared a tiny bit, they could have looked beyond Officer DeFillo's hunch and found truly contradictory evidence. George, after all, had an alibi. Plus, there could have been alternative suspects. Anyone looking at the case knows that the person they're looking for is someone with a connection to Eric Batiste. So it's a pretty small universe of people to look at. And George and his girlfriend, they had been um, in a place called the MRV Motel at the time of a crime. 
they had been with a group of people, including Eric, earlier in the night. They had parted ways about four hours before Eric was killed. And had gone together to the MRV motel, rented a room there. And let's not forget that George was underage. Not, I mean, he wasn't even close to being of age. But apparently at the MRV motel, you know, things were a little more fast and loose. He didn't necessarily need a credit card or even ID to check in there. When we investigated the case years later, it is not hard to find a lot of people who knew that that was the motel in the neighborhood you went to when you were underage because they didn't ask too many questions. Coming back years later, we even had the, the priest from the church across the road saying like, this was a nuisance business. They were always renting rooms to underage people. George had no idea what had happened to his best friend until the next day. When I got the news that my friend was, was, was killed, I couldn't believe it. I was just in shock. I was going to the, the city morgue to, to, to view that. But, you know, my friend, mother told me, like, don't go down there, George. They might grab you, think you had something to do with it. And then the next day, my friend of mine, Judy, told me, said, George, you on the news that you wanted for, for Eric's murder. And uh, my life just really just stopped from there. Because when I, I went home and my mom was like, George, just get your stuff and run. I'm like, Ma, I didn't do it. I'm not running. So I always believed that. You know, the justice system was the good guys, you know, the judges and the DAs and stuff like that. With rumors swirling around that the police were looking for him, George thought he'd better go down to the station and tell them he had nothing to do with Eric's murder. But before he was able to do that... They had a knock on the door, and there was Martin DeFillo leading the pack, hell bent on, arresting me, and put my hand behind the back, like, I got you, George. You know, and uh, you're under arrest for him. I'm like, I didn't do it, man. I didn't kill my best friend. I wasn't with Eric. I was in a hotel when it happened, man. You're like, yeah, well, I, I, I finally got you. And I'm like, the fellow, I, I didn't do it, man. You know, he was so excited to get me in handcuffs. So when he got me down to the, the precinct, he told the two detectives, this is George right here, you know. And uh, he just stole me to the wolves. Literally to the freaking wolves. Like Officer DeFillo, the precinct detectives were determined to pin Eric's murder on George by whatever means necessary. And they beat me and tried to get me to confess. I'm like, I'm not, I didn't kill my best friend. I'm not confessing. You know, I didn't do it. I've never killed nobody. I'm not no murder. And I didn't kill my friend, so I'm not signing nothing. And they beat me and beat me. But then after they got to beat me a while, Detective Louis Barrard, he told me, he said, George, just... I can see you don't fit the description, but uh, just get you a good lawyer and uh, you figure it out, work it out, you know, work it out on your own. This episode is sponsored by Marsh McLennan, the world's leading professional services firm in the areas of risk, strategy, and people. Its legal and compliance department provides pro bono legal assistance and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. Two days after his best friend was killed, George Toka was arrested and charged with second-degree murder. He spent the next year of his life in jail awaiting trial. His attorney, Henry Julian, who had just recently left the prosecutor's office for private practice, only visited George twice during that entire miserable year. The third time they met was on the morning of April 15th, 1985. I just went to court one Monday. He like, you ready? We're going to try this morning. I'm like, wow, really? And I said, is Eric's mother out there? Is my family or anybody? 
nobody was there with my mom, my girlfriend, Danielle. That was it. I mean, I didn't even know I was going to trial that moment for first-degree murder of faith in the death penalty. And unfortunately, George was also facing the notorious judge, Frank Shea. Frank Shea took pride in how many jury trials he could get through in a day, how fast he can move his cases, not providing any kind of justice. Some trials in front of Frank Shea went as quickly as, get this, 90 minutes. Yeah, you heard that correctly. Over his 33-year career as a judge in Section G of Louisiana Criminal Court, Louisiana went from 13th to 2nd in the nation for incarceration. And since his reign ended, some of the faulty convictions coming out of his court have been vacated. In addition to George, there's Isaac Knapper, Elvis Brooks, one of our recent guests on the show, and Calvin Duncan, who we know to be an absolutely breathtakingly brilliant prison lawyer who's helped a lot of other prisoners with their appeals. But let's get back to the trial. George's lawyer had really done very little investigation of the case. Um, and this is not a, a, not a difficult case to investigate. Right. Like we talked about earlier, Eric Batiste did this with someone he knew. So there's not a long list of potential suspects. And George's girlfriend, Danielle, was there to testify that they had parted with Eric about four hours before his death and gone to that infamous MRV motel, where it seems everyone in town knew that a very young person could get a room. But the defense lawyer was not prepared for prosecution calling the owner, who of course wants to protect his business, and so saying, no, of course, you do everything by the book. No, no one as young looking as George would ever get to rent a room there, which is, I mean, going back, we found just everyone from the neighborhood knew that was the motel you can rent a room when you're underage. Well, who knows what else was going on behind the scenes there, right? It's entirely possible that the cops either threatened the motel owner or that he very well might have faced some sort of charges himself. So for him, it was probably expedient to go ahead and testify to what they wanted him to say, right? Exactly. I think that's always at least an implied threat when um, when when you're running a somewhat sketchy business and law enforcement comes calling, you want to make law enforcement happy. I mean, right off the bat, that would have been a great way to impeach that witness. But George, it's, it just didn't even occur to your a- attorney, just didn't even think to raise that on cross-examination? He, he thought like a DA, he thought I was guilty. He didn't care. He was so inferior of Judge Shea and other people. He was just scared to object or just do anything. He didn't have an investigative team. You know, he he could have simply got the hotel phone records that would exonerate me within 30 days instead of 30 years. He could have got the dental records for the gold teeth. Uh, he didn't go get that. He just didn't care. But then there's a whole other element of this, Richard, which is the victim's family. What was their role in this? Because they believed throughout in George's innocence, right? I mean, that would seem like some powerful testimony. So I think what we see here is that the police and prosecution, they wanted to treat Eric as a victim so they could use a murder charge against George, so they could get life without parole against George, that essentially they were only treating Eric as a victim to the extent that it helped them punish George and nothing to do with compassion for the family keeping even just like basic professionalism in terms of keeping them informed. And as a result of that, they weren't even notified of the trial, as I understand it, against George. That would be powerful for a jury to see the victim's family sitting right behind the accused. I mean, that's going to have an impact on people, right? Yeah. And I think when they heard the evidence about this older, this older, taller person with their son, they, they, 
you know, they already knew it wasn't George because they knew George wouldn't lie to them if he'd been responsible for Eric's death. But they'd have had, you know, like additional reason to know it wasn't George if they'd known this description. You know, they know George, they know Eric, they know George is not an older, taller person compared to Eric. So predictably, George, you were convicted of second degree murder and given a mandatory sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. This was on April 23rd, 1985. But I have to ask, how long did the trial take and how long did the jury deliberate? It was it was a two day trial. It is it was a circus. It was it just it wasn't nothing done right. The judge kept rushing the, the witness off the stand. He said he had a five o'clock appointment to go to I think trying to go to a golf a golf event. Oh, he oh. had he had no respect for, for black people at all. And and then most shockingly he he snuck into the jury deliberating room the second day of trial and directed the jury verdict. Wait, what the he he went into the jury room during the deliberations? He got tired of waiting for the jury to come out the deliberating room and he went in there and I can just imagine you know somebody told him to get him out there so he could leave. So the track of show that he actually went into the jury room and discussed and took part into the jury deliberation of my trial. So after he came out of there, the jury they, they all agreed to a secondary murder and I was wrongfully convicted. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. Oh, <laughs> I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. Oh, my friends love it. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March. And ex-
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. My first five years after being wrongfully convicted, I just laid in the cell in the darkness. This, this in depression mode, this shock, this disbelief, that, that system that, that, that just took my life that, that for, for wrongful convicted of killing my best friend, somebody I love. But, but I, knew, I knew I was innocent. That's the main thing. I, I knew I didn't kill my best friend. I was innocent. And I knew that the truth would, you know, would come out. And so that 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 would kept me strong. Like that, I didn't do it. The whole neighborhood knew I didn't do it. The whole city knew I didn't do it. And I just do believe that God knew, and that it, it was going to work out for me. So um, that's why I just just uh, kept hold on to my my truth and my faith. And uh, time began to pass. So you know, and God spoke to me. You know, like like He let me know, like George, get in position to be. To, to, to be blessed, you got you got to start going law library. Just, you know, get out get out the, the TV room and in this depressed state, just sitting around crying about stuff. That's not going to change nothing. You got to you got to start doing something to change the situation. So I, I would begin to write innocent projects and stuff like in Canada and uh, New Jersey. I wrote Oprah Winfrey. I wrote anybody anybody I can uh, reach out for help share my story. And then I. Uh, Calvin came to Law Library one night and said, man, they got an innocent product in New Orleans. Richards comes back to you now. How did Ipno select George's case? And how were you able to undo this tragic miscarriage of justice? I believe Calvin Duncan, another of our clients, recommended it to us. Calvin Duncan was very active in our organization getting started and in recommending a lot of our early cases. Really, the investigation got going in about 2003. And so we filed in court for George on 2004 based on investigation that had found evidence as to who this taller, older person was with Eric, who we found by talking to people in the neighborhood and following up all the rumors that George and his family heard over the years to find out people who actually had like direct admissible knowledge on the issue. And then we filed a post-conviction application in 2004 and immediately stepped on a landmine because we moved to recuse the judge. It's a judge named Julian Parker because the judge had been a prosecutor in the DA's office at the time George's case was tried. And the judge um, did not take that well. And it ended with a judge not recused and us in front of that judge trying to present George's case with a judge who was not happy. He took it as a personal affront. And so that's how George's litigation started with our office, with us really offending the judge who was the decision maker. So a really auspicious start with Judge Parker. But still, there was truly compelling evidence to support George's innocence claim. In the course of our investigation, we had found fingerprint lifts where it appeared that the, the person who had shot Eric had touched a car at the crime scene. We filed in 2004 and we're going to move to have these fingerprints examined. We had located the fingerprints and had them moved for safekeeping to the head of property and evidence at the clerk of court's office at the criminal court at Tulane and Broad on the ground floor. And that's where they were on August 29th, 2005, when the levees broke and that entire room went under 
underwater because it, the key crucial evidence was being stored below sea level <laughs> in New Orleans. <laughs> you know, cases are always a struggle, but we've never kind of had a case that like started this badly from when we started litigating. <laughs> and George is very kind to laugh because this was a cruel situation he was put in from the get-go. <laughs> so Hurricane Katrina literally washed away one of the greatest hopes for relief in your case. You, you can't make this stuff up. When they, when they say we found it and they had that, that physical evidence, I'm like, fingerprint, it, a palm print or something, he touched the coal. I'm like, you know, they're going to show, they're going to show me that it wasn't me and that, you know, they're going to they're gonna exonerate me there. So, yeah. <laughs> and I got that phone call. I was, it was, I was devastated. That was the first time I actually cried. <laughs> but there was still a glimmer of hope. Ipno had managed to track down multiple witnesses who had either given affidavits or who had been willing to testify on George's behalf at the original trial, but they were never called by the defense. They were with the group when they like split up at the like the night before the murder, and so they knew that like George and his girlfriend went one way, and Eric and a couple of other people went another way. So they knew who Eric had left with, and lo and behold, it includes a guy called Edison Learson, who is an older, taller guy. And then additionally, we found people who had then seen Edison Learson just a few hours after Eric was called killed, like in the area, crying because he'd accidentally killed Eric, who were willing to testify to this. And then we also had a lot of witnesses who were willing to say, of course, the MRV rented to juveniles. So we had a lot of witness testimony, even without the documents. So we asked to proceed with that either both on basis of George being actually innocent and on the basis that if his lawyer had done a better investigation, he could have presented at least some of this evidence at George's trial and made a difference that way. So we went to court with that. So how was this evidence received by Judge Parker? After hearing all these witnesses testify, this is in front of a judge we had tried and failed to recuse, and he was essentially more aggressive than the prosecutor. And the judge says, I believe your witnesses are liars, essentially, so or I don't find them credible, so I'm not even going to consider if you're entitled to a new trial. I'm going to procedurally bar you. So the judge kicked George's case out of court. But you were able to appeal that and managed to get George a new hearing. And around this time, the U.S. Supreme Court had been making a number of landmark decisions in juvenile justice, including Miller versus Alabama, in which mandatory life without parole sentences were ruled unconstitutional for juveniles. And of course, George was a juvenile and had automatically been given life without parole. So that was a question of whether this was retroactive. And obviously, being made eligible for parole, being able to be possibly released is better than nothing for George. But it's it's not what he deserved. He's innocent. He never had a fair trial. But we, you know, want to, want to shoot for every target we can to try and improve George's situation. But when Ipno raised Miller versus Alabama, as it applies to George's case with the Louisiana Supreme Court, they ruled that the statute did not apply retroactively, which was an issue that the Supreme Court of the United States had yet to resolve. So we took the issue to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court actually chose George's case as the one to grant certiorari for, that they were going to use his case to decide if a ban on automatic juvenile life without parole sentences was retroactive. And we have been lucky enough to get Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative, who, as I'm sure your listeners know, is like the best in the business when it comes to this kind of stuff, was going to argue George's case. 
And at that point, as the case was getting ready to be argued in the US Supreme Court, the district attorney's office came to George with basically an offer of a deal was made. And this was that George could get out of prison, but they would essentially reduce the murder charge to manslaughter. They would also charge him with armed robbery, and he would be able to get out of prison that day, but it wouldn't be an exoneration. He wouldn't actually have to admit killing his friend, but he would have the conviction in place for having killed his friend. And so that is the position George was put in, and it was very, very hard for him to accept this. And New Orleans Parish District Attorney Leon Canizaro's decision here is just pretty telling. I mean, let's face it, clearly he had some trepidation about facing Brian Stevenson and probably getting his ass handed to him before the Supreme Court. But not only that, they'd be facing off on a case like George's. Even amongst anyone who has been sentenced to juvenile life without parole, George was unusually sympathetic. He was innocent. The crime at issue, while it was a legally met the different definition of murder, it was an accident. And um, he had, you know, this incredible prison record. So I think looking at that, I think you can understand why a prosecutor who may not want the bar on automatic juvenile life without parole to be made automatic would not want George to be the test case on the issue. So George, at that point, you made the heart-wrenching decision to take the sentence reduction, keeping your conviction in place. And on January 29, 2015, you were finally released after 30 long, miserable years. You know, having to take a, a, a plea for something I didn't do, and, and my best friend, I mean, it, it was it was a double nightmare. I thought I'd walk out in victory like everybody else. But uh, it was good to get out of prison and being able to see my mom, you know, seeing her, give her a hug, having time, spent some time with my mom before she, before she died. She died like a year after. So that's the only bright side because coming home, it was great to be out of jail, it was great to eat some nice food, different restaurants, you know, spend some time with a, a lady or whatever. But for me, my nightmare was still going on. It was still difficult being in that situation. And just everywhere I went, I was just getting doors slammed in my face. I was still bogged down by a conviction for something I didn't do. I was out, but not free. But it's important to understand what George was up against. At that time, no one knew how the Supreme Court would have ruled on the retroactivity question. If they had ruled against it, Canizaro's plea deal would have been gone, and George would have had to continue his appellate fight. If, on the other hand, they'd ruled in favor, George would still be looking at a life sentence, but with parole eligibility, as well as a continued fight to clear his name. So George took the plea and was released, even if he wasn't truly free. However, in 2016, almost exactly one year after George's release, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled in Montgomery versus Louisiana that the rule did apply retroactively. Had George not taken Canizaro's deal, how many times would he have been denied parole? Would he otherwise receive justice on his innocence claim and trial errors? Who knows how much more time he would have spent in Angola? So he took the deal in front of him, as I think I and probably almost all of our listeners would have done had we been faced with the same Sophie's choice that George was. But the story doesn't end there. Fortunately, there was a confluence of circumstances and personalities that came together, starting with the 2020 election of a new DA, Jason Williams, who had represented George in one of his early appeals. In addition, a new reform-minded judge, Nandy Campbell, took the bench in Section G of Louisiana Criminal Court, 
the position previously held by the notorious judges Shea and Parker. And finally, thanks to the work of IPNO, a new law was passed in 2021. That one recognized that for the first time in clear law, that proving your innocence with evidence, even if it wasn't DNA, was a basis to vacate a conviction, which was something we never had when we were litigating George's case. And second, gave prosecutors the power to essentially propose resolutions to the court that the court could accept, even if there wasn't necessarily a strict legal right to the thing. And so this would have been great for George, except that there was the prosecutor problem, because who was the prosecutor on the case? Since the new prosecutor, Jason Williams, had formerly represented George as an up-and-coming defense lawyer, he had to recuse himself and could not propose a resolution in this case. Fortunately, Judge Campbell appointed a special prosecutor, a guy named Ron Wilson, who you know had a real understanding of the circumstances of George's case. And his thought, well, the appropriate use of a prosecutor's power in this situation is that we should vacate George's guilty plea conviction. It was unjust and that we should dismiss the case against him. This is not a case that should be prosecuted. And so in September of last year, in 2022, George was actually fully exonerated. You, you know... Like right now, since I've been exonerated, I can sleep, I can dance, I can laugh, I, I, I can look, I hold my head up, I can look in the mirror, you know, because that's who I am. I'm, I'm not a murderer. I'm, my life right now is one big party. I'm always dancing and, and laughing because, yeah, that's that's my real personality. Well. George, you deserve to be laughing. You've been through so much. And I know you're going to make the best of everything that's coming up for you. And in fact, you've started your own business, a landscaping business called Royalty Horticulture. And I know you talk about it a lot. You just love working outdoors, right? Yeah, I, I keep my door open. I don't, want, I don't want to be locked in nowhere. I love to be out, you know, and it's my it's my dream to uh, to be successful, uh, a, a, a landscape company as well as real estate Folks, if you're in the New Orleans area and you need some landscaping work done, look up George Toka. We'll have a link to Royalty Horticulture in the bio so you can find him. So with that said, we now turn to the closing of our show, which is called Closing Arguments. And this is the part of the show that, uh, first of all, I thank you guys, Richard Davis and George Toka. Thank you so much for being here and sharing this harrowing story. And now I'm going to kick back in my chair turn my microphone off and close my eyes and just listen for anything else you want to share with our audience. So Richard, why don't you go first and then George will take us off into the sunset. So uh, I guess the, the, thing, the thing for me is just seeing the difference it has made to George, the difference between merely being out of prison, being physically free and the, I guess for want of a better expression, spiritual freedom that has come to him with being actually exonerated and I think that has just been so striking for me. We worked very hard on George's case. A lot of people worked on his case over the years, but I, you know, always thought it was not just a shame, but a tragedy that all we had managed was to get him out of prison. We hadn't gotten the result he deserved. So I think just seeing what a difference it has made to George being exonerated is, I think it's something we've said, but I think it bears saying again. I like to say in closing that, you know, America's, you know, one of the greatest countries, well, the greatest country, you know, in, in the world, and I, I love love it. But like I said, I know there's some some bad things about our country, and one of them is the you know the justice system with a lot of the uh, prejudice and and not some of the racist things that that still exists. You know, it's it's sad that 
you know, what happened to me and that that happens all over to other men, particularly, you know, young black men, how our lives are just get destroyed behind some DA lawyer who just who just wanna further their career and not really value the human aspect to to the job. And that would uh take a young a kid like 17 or whoever you know, age and just destroy his life like that and just you know, send him a prison for the rest of his life. I lost a lot. I don't have any children, never been married, and a lot the years of my life was gone. I can't get back. And I, I struggled with that at time, but I also gained a lot. And so, you know, I realized in my life I can't live in anger and all that and, and be bitter. That's not who I am, and that's not a good way to live. You know, my motto is like Jesus Christ. You know, the Bible says he went about doing good. So that's my thing every day to get up to, to try to do good and to help people and to uh, perfect the type of change that the justice system however, That's just want to live a, 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 be a good man and do good and uh, enjoy life. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. You can listen to this and all the Lava for Good podcasts one week early by subscribing to Lava for Good Plus on Apple Podcasts. I want to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Andy Chelsea, and Lila Robinson, as well as my fellow executive producers, Jeff Kempler, Kevin Wardis, and Jeff Clyburn. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us across all social media platforms at Lava for Good and at Wrongful Conviction. You can also follow me on Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free at